The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug, but I ended up connecting to the world around me, a world where each sunset was painted, where I felt adventures pulse with every step, and where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. A Podcast One production. G'day, I'm agricultural scientist Chris Russell, and welcome to Rebuilding Australia, Our Animals and Our Land. There's no doubt that the 2020 bushfires have been the most widespread and devastating in terms of both property and agricultural losses since Federation. We've seen it devastate our land and all that lives on it, including farm animals and wildlife. And this in turn, of course, impacts our farmers, their livelihood and the food production industry in Australia. So in this episode, we'll focus on the effects the bushfires have had on dairy farms, and in particular, those that have been severely impacted on the south coast of New South Wales. To discuss this, I've invited to join us veterinarian and consultant, Dr. Neil Moss. Neil's professional interests have always included whole herd management, covering both veterinary and feeding of dairy cows. He started his career as a large animal vet, but in the last 20 years has been farm advisor to cattle farms throughout Australia. In that regard, the New South Wales Government has appointed him as a specialist to coordinate the immediate post-fire dairy recovery under their emergency response plan. And he's been working down in the south coast of New South Wales in that way. Welcome to Rebuilding Australia, Neil. Oh, thanks very much, Chris, for the opportunity to be here. So that, that's a mouthful, the last job, um, but tell us what your normal day job is. Well, Chris, yeah, we um, do a lot of work, I guess, specifically with, with ruminant industry in, in our business. And I guess my original day job of, of doing a lot of veterinary work in, in the field with cows, traditional veterinary work, I guess, morphed over time, you know, with the benefit of a bit of postgraduate training into into a role that's now very much whole farm consultancy work. So in that in that role, we we work with dairy farm businesses mainly, but also an increasing number of beef businesses in basically decision support and, and advisory work across a whole range of fields. So we provide a, an integrated advisory, you know, looking to try and drive synergy and, and acknowledge the interdependence between all these key aspects of farm management that range from agronomic input, nutrition, preventive medicine and animal health, uh, financial work, consulting on facilities design, strategic planning, labour and people management, the whole gamut. And I guess our, our focus that if we if we just focus on one, we can miss the bigger picture. If we try and work in all those areas together, we can achieve probably better, more integrated outcomes for our clients. And is this just New South Wales? No, look, it's reasonably extensive, Chris. I've got uh, clients in Western Australia. We've done quite a lot of work in areas like King Island, Tasmania, uh Queensland, so, so right across Australia. So tell, tell us about this new job. Well, look, it was very much a, a short-term position and when the fire crisis hit, 
you know, it's second or third wave, or depending on how you look at it, it's been an ongoing crisis in, in New South Wales for a number of months now. But around the second of um, of January, you know, I was I was just calling my normal group of clients down in Bega to to try and organise my round of visits down there. I work with about ten farms down there on a regular basis. And it was quite early in the morning when I was doing that and it was before a lot of the, the news broke about the, the tragedy as it unfolded in the, the Cabago area in particular. And some of my clients in that area texted me back very quickly and said, oh, you better, you better give us a call because we've got a little bit of stuff we needed to tell you because it hadn't hit the media till about midday. And all of a sudden I was getting some really horrific reports of the extent of damage and you know the tragic loss of life down there as well which really meant I had to very much refocus, you know, what I was going to do. Um, I went and spoke to my, my, my business partner and said, look, we need to get down there in some shape or form and see what support we can give. And I, I contacted a, a, a close friend of mine who also works in the local land services down there, a fellow called Ken Garner, and said, look, you know, can we come down and help? And Ken basically said, look, yeah, we've got, we've got a role down here that we're looking at, at focusing on with these fires because of the critical importance of dairy to the region and from that we you know he basically said look we've got a special dairy focused liaison role to try and assist dairy industry in Bega um, because we've got about 24 25 farms affected you know are you interested in coming down and helping and yeah obviously I didn't know quite what I was getting myself into but yeah I, I jumped in the car and went against all that massive evacuation of traffic coming up the mountain from between Cooma and and Canberra, and was the only one heading south, I think, at the time, and all the smoke. And yeah, found myself down in, in Bega. And so, what was your number one priority when you hit the scene down there as, as the liaison officer? Yeah, well, my first priority was really contacting the farms. And I was given a list of um, farms that, that, that we knew were affected, and it was to make, to make um, phone or contact with them and just to help assist, assess what level of damage they had and what assistance they were likely to require. So part of that was just making contact, which was, which was actually extremely challenging because for a number of days we actually had no mobile service or definitely no landline service in a lot of these affected areas because of the fires themselves. So we were, we'd, we'd get a, a returned call, you know, from someone that had got up on top of a hill or was sitting up on top of the dairy shed or on top of the dairy silo where they could pick up a bit of a bit of service to just, you know, touch base and say, look, well, this is what's happened. This is where we're at, you know, we're, 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 we're sort of okay, but, you know, we've got 150 cows affected, you know, that on, on our farm and we've got 200 heifers that we might be feeding. We're 95% burnt out. And, and once we know those sort of numbers and we can set to work at our end calculating, you know, a, a fodder response because it's, it's calibrated basically with the amount of area that's been burnt out and the number of animals that are affected. So I'd take that information back to the forage procurement team um, and that was then able to be used. So we'll, we'll, the logistics makes sense for us to get, you know, half a, half a truckload out to this large farm and there's another farm next door that's also affected. So we, we'd work to try and look at these pooled, requirements within a locality to try and deliver the feed there as quickly as possible. Now, we, we came up with some really interesting issues that some farms had no access to to unloading equipment. So then the next thing we'd have to do is, is, is ring around or find locally someone that could bring a tractor in because their tractor hadn't been burnt to, to help unload the feed. So that was, that was part of it. In the background, we also came across some other you know, things that were a little less expected. Bigger Cheese had actually done a very good job coordinating and securing some lent 
generator resources. I think we had 12 or 15 generators had to go out on farm to, to actually uh, power these dairies so we could actually milk the cows. And and I guess they were fantastic in getting those out. We were in a position where if we got feedback from the farms that that they needed generators, then we could link them back up to bigger cheese. And then it was a matter of finding a way of getting those out to farms. So, you know, my my contacts list has expanded to include a whole heap of flatbed truckers, towing companies, all sorts of things that, that were just never there before because of these, these, these little bits of detail that you've actually got to wade through to get things happening back on farm. So I guess it was around making contact initially and, and just trying to um, assure people that, that, that there was a response and then actually trying to link the response that they needed with the resources that were coming in and getting that actually dispatched effectively on farm. So that um, ASFA, as they call it, which I think stands for Agricultural and Animal Services Functional Area, now that plan has been around since 2016, but they've never had this role before that you took on. Why, why, is, why did they, this time, did they need that? Look, I think that the decision was made at a, at a, at a local level to pursue that, and I guess because that, that area has got such a critical local importance of, of the dairy industry. So it was a bit of an initiative, I think, from, from the managers there at the office to say, well, look, I think we need a special role and, and the approvals were given and, and next minute, you know, we were down there. Because I think there's some there's some unique aspects to, to dairy, particularly when it's impacted on a, on a large scale. If we have significant interruptions to feeding, to, to getting milk out of the cows, it can have major implications for both their short and long-term health and certainly their long-term productivity. And I guess the flow-on effect of dairy in the community in that bigger area, if we if we lose milk supply, you know, there's many, many people employed in that town in that dairy production system. So I guess, yeah, it was just some good decision-making at in the, in the state government level um, at that local regional base that, that probably led to this focus position being created. So can you give us some measure of the scale of loss down there, both animal-wise and kind of productive country-wise? Yeah. Well, look, as I said, you know, we've, we've, we've had something between sort of 24 to 26 farms affected down there, you know, quite critically. The losses in, in milking cows weren't great. So most of the farmers, you know, they, they were very, very proactive at getting the cattle as close to the dairies in the most defendable positions possible. So, so we've had some, some minor losses of cows associated with burns. Um, and, and look, these have been dealt with, you know, by the farmers themselves or as part of the ASFA response. You know, one of the aspects of the ASFA response is to provide critical veterinary care and support, you know, in those first few days after the fires to assist with animals that might be injured. So the impact on the actual milking herds hasn't been particularly great with respect to loss of numbers. We've had a couple of herds have made a decision basically to cease milking. Um, some of that, you know, was a seasonal thing and, and they were probably going to cease milking in the short term just because they're seasonal calving systems. So seasonal calving, just to explain Yeah, that. so seasonal calving is basically when, when you, you coordinate the calving activity of your herd for a very certain time of year, for a restricted period, for about maybe six to 12 weeks. And that, again, allows you to, to run your herd in a very coordinated way to, to hopefully synchronise itself with the highest availability of pasture as it comes through the year, and hence the lowest potential cost of feed. So with all the cows calving at once, we've all, always got to go to, to, to actually stop their lactations at the same time as well. So, so that's generally done as a as a synchronised event, you know, over 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 a month or so, 
Um, and we like to let the cows probably rest after the lactation for, for uh, six to eight weeks just to allow the udder to regenerate and to, to restore its ability to milk the next time. So I guess in the situation down there where, where this particular herd was, was going to dry off anyway in about another four or five weeks, they just decided, well, things are just terrible. We have no pasture and we're in a real mess, so we'll just pull that back in an, an extra month. A couple of other smaller herds, you know, they're, they're very much looking at, you know, do we keep milking or not? And and we know that, you know, at least one herd has, has dried off their herd prematurely and just with a hope of being able to rebuild once we get some return to, to normal weather. So in drying off earlier than they otherwise would have, what will be the effect on, on those farms and farmers both now and when they start milking again? Yeah, look, I mean, the, 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 I guess there's two effects. I mean, the, the, the obvious negative effect is cash flow. You know, if you if you stop milking your cows, you take away your immediate source of income. And dairies, you know, it's very tight margins in dairy, as we know, and and and, and particularly when 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 milk price is perhaps not what people want, and and feed costs are particularly high. So so by drying off early, a lot of those margins that pay the other costs in the business are obviously going to disappear. So we're going to have a, a cash flow issue. I guess the flip side for for the guys, for these guys, is it probably gives them some potential relief of a lot of the work that they're having to do each day, milking the cows twice a day, feeding the cows twice a day. The cows can probably survive on less feed than they would otherwise. It's just there's actually no return from doing that feed. And it's probably going to be able to free them up to concentrate on some of the other tasks in rebuilding, which will be, you know, rebuilding fences, re-establishing pastures as we go into the next six to eight weeks. So is the damage you saw and the uh, and the losses you saw what you would have expected greater than you expected or not as much? How does it fit into the Look, what it's, your expectations? Uh, were? My, my, my first few days was spent basically on the phone trying to contact the farmers, and uh, at that stage, you know, you were getting a very good feel for what was going. It was probably not until I actually went out in the next week and actually spent time on, on, on about fourteen of these farms. Where you really got to see the extent of, of the burnout on these properties. So, you know, while the area was in drought and, and pasture already is in critically short supply, what was left was gone. And I guess the extent of what we saw on farm was anything from probably 30 to 100% of the pastured areas burnt out altogether. And then combined with that, the, the damage to critical infrastructure like fencing, machinery, there were tractors that were burnt out, there were other machinery like seeding machines that had melted. Um, we had sheds that, that had basically collapsed and burnt down. A lot of the farmers had done a lot of what we advised and, and got very prepared for uh, ongoing drought and dry conditions. They'd secured a lot of feed already off harvest out in the west and then they'd brought that back to farm. It didn't take a lot in some cases for, a, for an ember to get into some of these hay sheds and destroy all that hard work and preparation. So I guess, you know, from a physical perspective, the, the damage on farm was, was extensive. I guess one of the, the major things that you, that you really start to get a feel for, particularly when you're on farm, and, and, and it was quite poignant looking at this a, bit, a week later, is just, just the emotional damage and the, and the people damage, you know, and, and spending the time talking to, to the affected farmers, because a lot of them weren't in my client group. You know, they were people that I knew, because I know a lot of people in the industry down there, but actually going out and just seeing the the stress and the pain and, and, and the anguish on these people, but also the resilience. It was quite, it was quite challenging. And, and again, you know, there's this wonderful thing that you see is that none of them actually think they're worthy of being helped. They're all, they all think someone else's need is greater than theirs. 
So it was something which was really humbling to see that, is to say, well, look, you know, yeah, we're really bad here on our farm, but but, but our neighbour, they're worse, you know. So, you know, we want you to get the help to that farm first. And just quite quite inspiring and humbling experience from a, from a human perspective. Yeah, that's the Aussie spirit, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing, I must say, and one that you see here more than you and I both travel overseas a fair bit and you see it here more than most other countries, really. So what what was your... As for response, your New South government sort of planned response. To yeah, that. so, so, and again, you know, the first my, the first challenge with my response is getting my head around all the acronyms used in government. Uh, <laughs> as for being one of them, but um, you know, coming in with a little bit of naivety from the outside was probably a good thing because because I guess we, we 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 were able to to work within that response and 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 move through and support some of the bureaucratic processes to actually get delivery on farm for what we, we really needed out there. And I've got to say that the working with the DPI and LLS guys, local land service staff on, on the ground was just inspiring as well. Their, the coordination of their response and their ability to mobilise people from all over the state to support them was incredible. And pulling people out of holidays from Armidale to come and help in Bega, from Glen Innes, from, from Hay and Griffith, all these people were actually mobilised to to produce this this combined response, there's, there's four key facets to to to, to what Astra's obligations are to, to provide help. The first is to coordinate forage deliveries for emergency feeding of livestock. So so basically, there's a commitment within that to provide three days of emergency feeding of livestock, so so people can get their, themselves on the ground. And obviously, the government can't perpetually feed these farms, but providing three days of feed at least, it gave some farms the opportunity to say, well, what's next? Is donator fodder coming in? Are there other places where we can get feed on top of that? So so I guess when we look at that at a macro level, you know, within the, the, the southeast region fire response this year, you know, that, that response has already secured something like 1,100 tonnes of feed and distributed that across around 600 farms, okay? And uh, so quite a, a quick response. The, the whole state requirement this year is with respect to total ASRA response is getting close to 11,000 tonne of fodder. So it's a huge amount of feed that's actually going back in there. So I guess when we hear that government's doing nothing, we certainly know that that part of the government is actually... Is that paid for by the government? It is. It's mm. fully funded, yeah. So, so, so that'll be coming, again, I guess, partially out of local land service rates and, and, and accumulated funds. But a lot of it's, it's just predominantly coming from, from, from state government coffers, I would imagine. The second and really important part of the response is, is, is support of critical water supply on farms. So if, if farms have had to, to give water to rural fire services to, to put fires out, that water's replaced. And again, if water infrastructure has been damaged for fire and animals can't be watered, there's some support in providing um, emergency water supplies in that situation while they're supplied. There's also this critical... Um, role for, for the veterinary teams to go onto the farm. So in each of these teams, we have a, a veterinary officer or veterinary who's, who's experienced with large animals. Some of these came from private industry in the local veterinary clinics, some fantastic staff coming out of there from the Bega Veterinary Clinic. And, and others are within the government group of, of local land service veterinarians who are also highly skilled and coming from, from all over the state. These guys pair up with what we call a biosecurity officer. And these are, are, are generally expert marksmen as well, okay, and basically the combined role is to, is to go through the properties, generally on request um, from, from people that register for, for help, to, to basically support decision-making with how animals are treated after the fire. Now, that can 
involve euthanasia, but also it can involve identifying animals for treatment and ongoing treatment in bushfires is supported by the ASFA response as well. The final part of it is that they help coordinate burial of animals um, that are dead. And you can imagine some of these farms where when numbers of hundreds of animals were lost require significant infrastructure, machinery, capital to come in and coordinate burial of these animals in a timely manner. So, you know, the, the cleanup is rapid and very efficient and, you know, done done best practice in the combination of resources. You know, down there there were local contractors being used for this and also this is part of where the, the ADF, the Australian Defence Force, um, resources were also utilised to assist in burial as well. How long did you have? These, these guys were milking cows every day yep. or twice a day, sometimes three times a day. Yep. Um, how long did you have before you were going to start, these cows were going to start having some real issues? Absolutely. Look, we, we know that even a 12-hour interruption to, to cows that are used to being milked twice a day has has some impact. And, and, the, and the impacts of not milking cows are, are, are multiple. Firstly, we have... You know, just a general signalling to the cow metabolically, if she's not milked for a number of days, well, we don't need you to milk anymore. So you can actually switch off your normal hormonal endocrine mechanisms that, that say that lactation is where you need to be at at the time. So if cows aren't milked, they automatically start reducing their potential to milk produ- produce milk in the future. The second thing that, that we have that, that can be a bit of a risk is that if cows aren't milked and, and they're used to producing quite a bit of milk, is that we have an increased risk of mastitis, okay? So mastitis is an, an infection of the udder, okay, that can occur and um, a lot of people may be familiar with it. But basically one of the – because cows aren't in a pristine environment, you know, we, we are in paddocks with dirt and grass and poo, there is always potential for, for, for mastitis to occur. Now, we have a lot of practices on farm that, that keep mastitis levels at extremely low points. And and there are you know it's a, it's actual core part of dairy management is is milking hygiene and and preparing the cow and managing the cow so that doesn't happen. Part of that important process of milking is not only does it remove the milk from the cow but it, it flushes the udder out and the teats with with fresh milk and basically any any contamination that may be starting to move into the udder is removed. We also go through a process where we milk when we milk most of the cows to, to actually sterilise the ends of the teats after milking with disinfectants, okay, to, again, reduce the risk of this actually occurring in what isn't a perfect environment, you know, it's a farm. So people do this very, very successfully, but if we stop milking cows and we're not flushing and we're not going through those other processes, that risk of mastitis increases as well. That's got an impact on animal wellbeing, which is, which is really important. You know, um, it's obviously infection and inflammation. Um, but importantly, it also can impact milk quality. So, so there's a real imperative for us to get these milks, cows milked as quickly as possible. And, and, and the milking function was restored on most of these farms within 24 hours, if not 12 hours. There are a couple where we had a few delays that went out to two to three days. What about the psyche of the farmers? You know, dairy farmers, I know you said they're worried about their neighbour and there's this outward robustness and she'll be right, mate, but she wasn't right. And, you know, how, how did you deal with these farmers psychologically? Yeah, look, everyone is different, Chris, and and, and one of the things that, that you, you learn after working on farms with people for, for a lot, with, with people for a long time is that, that you've got to approach all of them differently. And quite often the outward psyche may not reflect the inward psyche. I guess it's really important also to, to put in context that, that the fires come on top of, of some pretty wobbly feet in the first place. The area's been severely impacted by drought. 
and and this underlying you know impact of drought and 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 critical water shortages in some cases has only been made significantly worse on these particular farms by these fires. So you know the psyche in general you know was anything from extremely robust and let's just get on with it through to seeing some people that were just completely flat and didn't know which way to turn and and just really needed some very basic support in in, in what do we do next. And I guess you know the critical time will be probably the next few weeks as we move out of what we probably call the adrenaline phase of dealing with the crisis to the actual realisation phase, which is where we're moving into now, of what this really means for all these individual businesses. So, you know, one of the, our critical engagements and, and has been to, to work closely with, with, with some of the mental health teams and, and bring them into the fold as well to make sure that the mental health aspects on these farms are, are also being supported as part of the response. So are the needs of these farms that you started dealing with changing continuously or can you forecast where they're going to flow? Look, I think bigger, like a lot of areas, um, it's highly responsive to rain, okay, and 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 it's an interesting time of year because if we, if we get rain now, we can actually get very rapid recovery from pastures and the needs from, 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 from an immediate perspective are really dictated primarily by by feed and feed for livestock. A lot of the farms were drought affected to start with and we're already buying feed. And I guess, you know, what happens now and how we can respond to, to a break if we get it. Now, we've had some parts of the state that have had some rain. We haven't had a lot down in that bigger area. Um, we've had enough to put a bit of a green skirt on things, okay, and we are starting to see some of the, the residual grasses like the Kaikiu and, and Paspalum starting to actually emerge through some of the burnt areas very quickly. But really, the needs with respect to feed are going to be pretty profound. And, and I guess because of the drought, um, we've, we've seen quite a contraction in available feed, you know, due to huge demand right across the eastern seaboard. And because of the fires, we've seen sort of almost a, a panic buying occur in the marketplace and a huge buy-up of feed, which has actually shortened supply significantly over and above where it was and also increased price. So, so critically... The main need is water, okay, and that need of water is for both growing feed but also for on-farm water supply, which is dwindling in many cases. You know, we've got a number of farms in a number of regions now, not just in the Bega Valley where where we've been having to actually look to truck water in for livestock. How much water a, ca- a day does a cow Huge volumes, Chris. So, so, you know, summer we do our water budgets based on around 200 litres per cow per day. So if we're talking about 100 cows or 1,000 cows, you know, we do a multiplier on that and it's... It's a lot of water that we need. And this has been, you know, a critical issue that we've been facing. So I guess there's going to need to be some review, you know, at, at high levels as we move forward of, of, of how farms, particularly in, in drought-prone areas, can actually respond or look at, at different ways at, at, at addressing on-farm water storage. So so we are going to have to have a look at this at an industry level and, 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 and there's going to potentially need to be some review of policy on things like harvestable right, you know, how much of our water on farm can we actually collect and do we need to look at particularly in coastal areas where we don't necessarily have the benefit of, of, of irrigation and stored water, maybe looking at different laws and different space there for, for maybe capturing and holding more water on farm so we can help be, farms be more resilient when it comes to drought as well as fire. So I think we, we spoke to um, former Fire Commissioner Greg Mullins and he compared these fires as being the crust 
really on top of the drought, and the drought was the big issue. But how, how long will it take them to recover from this, do you think, now? Look, I think, I think you've got to look at recovery in three phases, and, and, and there's the, probably the pasture and feed recovery. That can actually be reasonably quick if conditions are right and we get the correct autumn. If the working capital is available on-farm to, to, to get the seed in the ground and the fertiliser on and we get the rain through autumn, we can have a very rapid response if people take the right agronomic choices. With respect to rebuilding infrastructure, that'll vary greatly. I mean, some of these farms have been lost every inch of of fencing internal and external. Uh, They've lost sheds, they've lost storages, they've lost water tanks, they've lost feed storage infrastructure, they've had pits of silages burnt out. So some of that repair is going to take months, okay? And, and it'll depend, again, on, on, you know, what level of insurance they did or didn't have, you know, how effectively some of the, the supporting agencies like Blaze Aid are, are able to get around. And we're talking thousands of kilometres of fencing. And the charities are absolutely wonderful in this space for supporting that, but it takes a long time for, for, for those guys to get around that, that level of fencing. I guess the third phase is, is the emotional recovery from it. And I think, you know, looking at it and talking to other people that may have had major disasters in the past you can superficially we can get through that you know as well in in months but you know i think the reality is that that some of it will take years and some people may never get over what they've been through with these fires and i certainly think you know there will be some farms that are really looking at their position in the industry and saying well do we really want to get over this at all we might might just step sideways and do something else. What about you mentioned the the charities? What about the donated funds? How have they been? How effectively has that been distributed? And how easy it has been for the farmers to get their hands on their money? Clearly, given quickly and willingly by the donors up in the big cities predominantly, and also even overseas film stars, everybody. But how easy and how quickly and how well has that been distributed? One of the the things that we really focused on down there was actually looking at. at at looking at effective ways to try and link donation with need, and and I guess the things that we were conscious of there was you know what's what, what's a good channeling house to make sure that that comes comes into the dairy sector, and I think this is where where New South Wales farmers stepped up um, as as a receiving organisation for that, and they're working very closely with those don- donors to try and get those funds out to farms. And I think through that channel, there'll be terrific support, goes straight back to the dairy industry, but it'll also be distributed part around other agriculture as well. One of the things that we worked with, again, as part of our rebuilding response was, was, was to closely align ourselves with rural financial counselling services and to, to try and engage some of their resources and some very good local resources in that space to come in and, and actually go through a lot of the, the government support that's there. Because there's been some some challenges accessing that. A lot of that has been around paperwork, and and complication with filling out the paperwork. That's been quite exhaustive, and then getting that through the point where it can be processed by the likes of Centrelink. So again, we've had a fantastic engagement by rural financial counselling services and in in supporting us in that space to to try and get some of that that government assistance there actually out of the the announcement space and the headline space to actually get that on farm. So what are the priorities for the farmers now, do you think, down there in their own minds? Yeah, look, I think uh, it's interesting when you go onto farms and and, and see what the priorities are. And this was this was a lot of what what, what I was doing before we had a, a, a bit of a broader industry meeting towards the end of my posting down there was to go out and see what the farmers really needed. And it was interesting as we went around, you know, critically feed is, is of high importance and continuing 
to, to either be able to access purchase feed while we wait for rain or making sure they're in a space to, to actually deal with rain when it comes with um, sowing and planting. Fencing is a huge priority on a lot of these farms um, and, and just to being able to contain and manage stock and keep neighbours out, neighbours' cattle out and and to gradually, you know, improve that fencing and re-subdivide the farm back up to where it had been previously, that's, that's a really high high priority for a lot of the farms, you know, at, at, at ground level. One of the things that we were really conscious of, there was the danger around trees. Okay, we have a lot of large trees that have been burnt out in these properties because it's, you know, there's a lovely sort of woodland areas around these farms, but also a lot of the, the features of that part of the country is that it's not open plains country, it's it's cleared forests, you know, where we have, and we've got a lot of residual apple gums and other big trees that have had their cores burnt out. So there's actually quite a bit of danger associated with these trees on farms. So part of our response has been looking to actively, you know, work with, with some of the other supporting agencies to encourage um, some engagement of arborists to come in and identify trees quickly that can be targeted for removal that are dangerous. And then that can be then linked with, again, agencies like the Australian Defence Force to come in and help get those trees taken down to, to, to hit the safety aspects. I think just keeping it together is a priority too for a lot of these people. You know, and, 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 and that... Keeping the head together? Keeping, keeping the head the farm together, together and the farm together. The together. Yeah, mm. and just getting up and going again. There's this really high level of nervousness even when I left because, you know, you'd look out in the hill and there'd be another puff of smoke coming up in the mountain and um, across the valley there's another little fire burning that just hasn't quite been put out and then the big nor'easter comes in in the afternoon because you're on the coast and that fire can just move it up another direction. You know, there's this nervousness, this this just trying to get composure and trying to rebuild routine, I think, because dairy dairy's very much about routine for a lot of people and and trying to rebuild that routine, I think, is actually a bit of a priority but it's probably one that's not prioritised. So just getting back to normal, you know, whatever normal is, Looking forward, you know, we've got we've got big issues again with water supply and this is one of the things that we're really going to need to look at and, and hopefully, again, if we get rain, we can get some recharge in local dams and streams and that can, that can address that as well, Chris. So what are the lessons that we all should be learning from, from these fires, you think, for the future at every level? Oh, look, there, there'll be so many lessons. I think, I think some of the stuff which is really encouraging is seeing how functional teams can work. So having people that have specialised knowledge, I think, in, in these critical sectors, I think is probably a good model in the future and it might be one that gets looked at again because it really does allow you to, 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 to mobilise resources that are not necessarily on the radar of the people that are managing the whole crisis. You know, if you're, if you're managing the whole crisis at a local land service, you're dealing with multiple thousands of enterprises and businesses and, and properties, many, many people and everything from someone that owns two horses out to 2,000 cows. Where you've got critically important enterprises, there is value in having some people in those offices that can really focus on supporting those those enterprises. And having good networks established, you know, the, that are functional and working together is actually a very important part of response. Because everyone wants to help and sometimes it's a matter of actually having someone to say, well, this might be the help that you want to give, but this is the help we need. And motivating that help so it's well-directed and integrated with the other aspects of help so we aren't trying to all clamour to put our, our socket in the same plug hole, you know, it, it gives a much better response when, when, when we do have disaster. So, you know, I've got to say that, that, that the organisations, when asked to do something like Dairy Australia, we had... 
you know, one of the things we talked about earlier, Chris, was the issues around utter health and mastitis. I, I, I made a call quite early to to some people I know at Dairy Australia. So, look, we're going to have this issue with with potentially mastitis and milk quality. Are there some resources you, you can you can send up? And within 12 hours, we had two of their best people on the ground mobilised on the plane in Vega and within within 48 hours, we'd had those guys up 17 driveways giving one-on-one support, you know, with, in conjunction with the local vets, what we were doing to the farms that critically needed it on farm and and just had just such a wonderful supporting response in that. And, you know, hopefully not only was it important for these guys to be on the farm to provide technical support, they also helped the farmers in many cases just with organisational support and it was just someone that they could tell the story to. And I think this, having this time for someone to listen and tell the story for those for traumatised people is, is really important part of the process. So if there's a lot of people, as you say, who want to help and they want to know how they can help, yep. um, from a farmer's point of view, what do you think they'd be saying, can you help with this? What would they be saying to them? Oh, Chris, look, at the moment, lots of farmers are going to have different needs and, and some of them don't even particularly want help. Okay, they just want to get on and do it and just keep beetling along. I think the thing that probably frustrates farmers more than anything is when there's help available that's that's promised, there's a, they, they don't want hollow offers of help and stuff that they can't access. So there's too much paperwork and too many hoops to get through and they get very frustrated, you know, when they're told one thing, they try and do it and then if they're referred to a website or, you know, a 1-800 number to get more help, they just put up the walls and they just don't want to do it anymore, you know. The last thing you want to hear is, oh, look up a website and, and here's a link to, to some paperwork for you to fill out so you can get grant X. Okay, because at the end of the day, you know, when you're in a crisis, a lot of the time they don't have phone service or access to the internet anyway. So if I look at all the help that's there, one of the biggest things is actually making sure that what is promised is actually accessible. So uh, people just arrived down there, baby boomers, you know, who are now grey nomads and they arrived down in Bega and they're saying, we can help. Is there someone coordinating that, saying, yes, he needs some fencing or he'd like you to paint his dairy or, you know, whatever, or they just have to hunt around and find out what to do? So there's a bit of both. And I guess when you've got you've got organising charities like Blaze Aid that are fantastic for this, you know, they will they will get people in line and doing things, you do get these sort of haphazard offers of help. So we had we had a phone call from a group of, I think they were US firefighters that said, well, send us somewhere. And that's 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 really difficult, you know, to, to actually say, well, where do we send you? You know, firstly, how do you prioritise who needs it more than someone else? But then how do you deal with some of these issues like safety and, you know, the, the real issues around things like trees that can fall down and kill people once you start putting things on people on farm, it's, it's quite profound. And you've also got to be very sensitive with the people that are affected at ground level because sometimes they don't want to keep telling their story to another person that walks on farm. You know, sometimes there, there, there is a, there's a real sombre, you know, attitude on farm and, and, and mood and, and having, you know, the, the wrong people, the wrong sensitivities go onto those farms and they may just exhibit a little bit of misplaced flippancy, you know, and, and completely well-intended and it can actually have quite a strong emotional impact in the wrong place. So I think it's wonderful to see see these people coming in and helping and I do think that there is room for more coordination potentially and, you know, what's a better and broader coordinated response to triaging both donated funds, okay, and donated 
people and, and time. Yeah, there'd be a lot of role for that, Chris, I think, moving forward. Well, Neil, really appreciated you being our agri-minder today. You have been really minding our agriculture in the fullest sense of the word down there, and thank you for doing that for our dairy farmers. And we appreciate hearing that inside story right from the front of where this fire has been affecting us. So thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you for the opportunity, Chris. Clearly the impact has been devastating and demoralising, even on the most resilient of our Australian farmers. The ability of local communities to rebound is remarkable. Alternative ways to milk cows within hours, fodder delivered within days, and the rapid support of vets, milk companies and other support groups within 48 hours have all been achieved without fanfare, but with determination. I guess all we can say is thank God for our volunteers and our experts like Neil Moss for their speedy reaction and management of the situation. We must try and move forward with confidence and make sure we learn from the events of 2020. If you would like to learn more about the future of our land and animals in Australia, I invite you to join me on my podcast series, AgriMinders, on Podcast One Australia. If after listening to this episode, you would like to offer some of your help in our efforts to rebuild Australia, the greatest ongoing need amongst wildlife rescue groups at the moment is for new volunteers. And as so much habitat has been destroyed by the fires, they're also looking for people to offer up release sites on private land for rehabilitated wildlife. So contact the New South Wales groups that need volunteers, which include WIRES, Wildlife Rescue South Coast, Animal Rescue Collective, Four Australian Wildlife Needing Aid, also known as Fauna, and Sydney Wildlife. Visit their websites if you'd like to find out more. Rebuilding Australia, Our Animals and Land was presented by Chris Russell and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Produced by Jennifer Goggin, Edited by Lindsay Green, with sound production by Matt Nikolic.